The following is a party political broadcast. Hello! We are the surviving members of Monty Python. Nee. Now, we all know that this parrot is definitely deceased. But something that's truly dead? The bloody Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn. I certainly didn't expect the Socialist Inquisition. That's right. You might as well vote for the silly party, know what I mean, nudge nudge? Thank you, Eric. You see, Britain needs strong, stable leadership. And the last thing we need is an enormous group of unskilled migrants silly walking across our borders. So, remember, unless you're in the right room for an argument, we must fight back against the extremes of both the right and the left. Vote Liberal Democrat, or I shall taunt you a second time. Welcome back to Michael and Us. I'm Luke Savage. And I'm Will Sloan. Roll reversal once again. Yeah, I don't even know what to do when you start. Jeez. <laughs> Longtime listeners will know that we're coming from the city of Toronto. And I don't know if you saw, but the long-threatened Garfield-themed restaurant has finally opened in Bloordale. Uh, you alluded to this on a previous episode. I didn't realize the glorious day had finally arrived. So. I just saw this on Twitter today. I thought you were going to say, I, ju- I just had dinner there. <laughs> well, you know, I probably will at some point. <laughs> I mean, how how can you not? Are you gonna you gonna have lasagna? I think they primarily serve pizza. Garfield doesn't do pizza, does he? No, he does pizza. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, clearly you're not up on your Garfield lore. Garfield is a cat of Falstaffian appetites. <laughs> he has a, a broad palate. <laughs> the the Garfield themed restaurant, which is called Garfield Eats, and this is an actual thing. I'm not joking. It serves personal pizzas that are shaped like Garfield's head which just translates to being like a weirdly shaped, like an inconveniently shaped pizza. Is it like elegantly crafted? Like, does it actually resemble Garfield? Uh, I mean, it's, I I guess it does, from what I've seen, have his silhouette, but I wouldn't say it's artisanal, no. I gotta say, it kind of sounds like a downmarket Chuck E. Cheese, and I'm not impressed. I kind of hope that it's actually a huge success, because because I want it to be so successful that it raises all the rents in Bloordale, and then it won't be inhabitable anymore. And like, we all know this is gonna happen eventually. That's the the best outcome here, if the Garfield restaurant prices people out of Bloordale. Well, because it's gonna happen. It's going to be something. I don't know if it's Starbucks. Something's going to do it. And for, for it to be the Garfield restaurant, I think that would be just the perfect criminal, wouldn't it? Well, I, I for one, welcome Will Sloan's uh, capital accelerationist pivot. <laughs> Following our last free episode on uh, the art documentary Shock of the New, there was quite a response, partly to do with Will's perceived slight of socialism with Chinese characteristics. And, and, and uh, I, I want to reassure the listeners that afterwards, uh, we had a struggle session. I made clear that counter-revolutionary tendencies will not be permissible in Michael and Us Nation. That goes for all the listeners as well. What was this rea- reaction again? It was... It- well, I heard from a few people who felt that uh, I was talking about how the Chinese film industry, the government has very heavy control over it. Which it, is true. It's heavily censored. Uh-huh. And they really regard it as a vehicle of soft power. And it's an industry that's producing a lot of these patriotic blockbuster type movies now. I got several comments saying that uh, we didn't also we didn't follow it up with sufficient criticism of the Hollywood uh, system. All right, let's so make let's make absolutely clear Hollywood absolutely produces propaganda for the military industrial complex. I think that's something we've talked about on the show 
uh, before. Indeed, Hollywood doesn't even have to be told to do it. They do it voluntarily. Right. But I, I think one of the other things that, I mean, perhaps people that are not as familiar with your tastes might not realize is that uh, you're a tremendous appreciator of Chinese cinema. I mean, I think my pers- <clears throat> my view of the current state of the Chinese film industry, I'm coming at it from a place of being heartbroken by it. Mm-hmm. It's sad when you look at the great movies that were coming out of the 70s, 80s, and 90s in Hong Kong. These very vibrant energetic movies that are often full of very tricky and difficult and heavily violent and sexual subject matter movies that would not be possible under the current system you know that's a film industry that has been totally swallowed up by the mainland and now many of its most interesting filmmakers people like Choi Hark now make propaganda films I mean it's a very heartbreaking thing to see in the mainland many of the great filmmakers from the 1980s, like Zhang Yimou, who once had a very combative relationship with the government, they also make propaganda now. And I think the great films that come out of China, um, and there are still great films that come out of China, uh, Zha Zhangke is a great filmmaker, for example. He made uh, A Touch of Sin and Ash's Purest White and other films, but they're very much the exception that proves the rule. And you can constantly see them struggling against the confines that they're working in. And if America has an advantage over China, um, it's that it is actually possible to make dissident art in America. And it's still, of course, very difficult, and uh, it's hard to get funding for it. And if you do get funding, you can be ridiculed, you can be shut out of the industry entirely. But um, yeah, but that remains true. I'll just say, as the podcast's you know resident socialist writer, I mean, I I get it. You know, the way that the Soviet Union or China are dis- are discussed in the West. It tends to be incredibly dehistoricized, stripped of any kind of context, and frequently discussed in a way that's you know without context, um, and you know which is often uh, built around kind of you know the needs of kind of the Western mainstream, um, you know its own kind of identity crises. I think one of the things that's really come out in a lot of the Russiagate stuff. I mean, some of the just crude anti-Russian prejudice that's come out. I mean, I can't remember which liberal blue check mark it was that had that tweet in 2016 about like, what has Russia ever produced apart from, you know, gulags and Fabergé eggs or whatever, uh, you know, I mean, so that- I can think of a few writers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> filmmakers, you know, yeah. novelists, poets, sculptors, what, you, you know, you name it, um, revolutionaries, it's, you know. But it's a big country and a country with that sheer amount of land mass is inevitably going to produce a few. <laughs> What's your point, Luke? <laughs> Sitting across from me joining us is Josh Marshall, Talking Points Memo. <laughs> No, so uh, so so I get it, and uh, yeah, as I said, I've made I made clear in our weekly uh, post-recording struggle session that Will's crude prejudices will not be tolerated further. Anyway, there were a few other, there was some other feedback on that episode. I think because it was kind of a uh, maybe more cerebral than some of the ones we've been doing. Um, Don't flatter yourself, pal. But okay. <laughs> um, well, I mean, compared to like we did an episode on Judge Judy, <laughs> I think it qualifies. Um, And so, you know, I wanted to do a little kind of mailbag section before we get into the meat of today's show, both about Shock of the New uh, and our our episode and also just some other feedback we've been getting on on the Patreon and elsewhere. Uh, There was a comment on the Patreon with some specific questions and I I did want to go through them. I'm going to toss these out to you. After listening to your recent episode... 
Number 103, Shock of the New, I was left with a few questions. In the dichotomy of high and low art, where would you put, for example, Tim and Eric's Billion Dollar Movie? It's exclusive, like the 18th century opera, but not really along class lines. If you showed it to both a highbrow critic and a random person on the street, I don't think either would be likely to get the point of it. What do you think about that? I mean, I think this is an example of why the high and low distinction is often so arbitrary, not really enforceable. I mean, Tim and Eric as a phenomenon, you wouldn't exactly call them high art, but they also, but their audience is typically, I I guess, upper middle class or middle class Mm. and uh, educated and have a lot of elite characteristics. Also, Tim and Eric's work inspires a broad range of reactions, so I'm not, I'm not quite sure where I would put it in that arbitrary dichotomy. Okay, um, the next question involves the word praxis, so I'm going to read it, and then I'm, I think I'm going to field this one. You're welcome to weigh in. I don't um, have a pra- praxis, <laughs> no. If high and low art have a class character, does that mean it's bad praxis to dislike mass culture? Is it bourgeois or elitist to consume what is considered high culture? So I think I, I tried to deal with this a little bit on, on the last episode, No, it's not bad praxis to dislike mass culture. It's okay to dislike mass culture, but I I don't think that liking or disliking mass culture is in itself very political. It really is kind of a matter of taste. My, My own, I guess, view of this and the way that I tend to consume what might be called mass culture is that, you know, it's done for entertainment. I mean, you don't go to see... You know the new. You saw the new Godzilla movie, right? And you do yeah. that for entertainment. You don't go because you're you're expecting Fellini, and nor should you, right? Uh, um, that's I, fine. I also don't think I'm engaging in a political activity. Absolutely not. So. so, and yeah, and part of the problem with the way that a lot of this the consumption of art and media gets discussed is that people are constantly trying to apply these. And I'm not accusing the questioner of this, but our people are trying to apply kind of these heavy-handed, you know, moral and political frameworks to it, and I just think that's a, a losing battle. So, to, as to the second part of the question, is it bourgeois or elitist to consume what is considered high culture? No, I mean it's bourgeois to be part of the bourgeoisie and to, you know, exploit wage labor. It's okay to like the opera. I listen to a lot of jazz. You know? Culture I mean, is for everyone. A lot of these forms were originally mass absolutely. culture. I mean, yeah. jazz is a perfect example. Yeah. So, yeah, no, no, it's not. Now, this last question, I'm afraid I I don't have an answer to. Maybe you will. It's a very good question. What do you think about the Yugoslavian approach to social engineering, which is quite different from either the fascists or the Russians, which were both heavily influenced by realism? The Tito regime instead promoted modernist culture, particularly evident in the brutalist monumental architecture of that period. I'm embarrassed to say, but I don't know enough about Yugoslav architecture to answer this question in a a way that's convincing. I think uh, Yugoslavia is, is probably one of the most... Uh, you know, interesting parts of the Eastern Bloc in terms of the cinema it produced and, and various other things. But that's something I'll have to kind of ruminate on. And if, uh, you know, if we do a future episode on another uh, installment of Shock of the New, maybe we can get into that a bit. I hate brutalist architecture, and I hate any architecture that has political ideas. I'm Tom Wolfe, everyone. <laughs> what did I tell you about counter-revolutionary sentiments on the podcast? Some feedback on our uh, Tim and, speaking of high art, a Tim and Eric's Billion Dollar Movie episode. This guy, Dan Bell, has a YouTube series where he wanders around dead slash dying malls and sometimes plays Vaporwave in the background. 10 out of 10 aesthetic. Um, sounds like Cool Duder, yeah, that's, who, who that's, also often walks around dead and dying spaces. That sounds great. Not related to Shocker the New, I would like to hear more about the fitness YouTubers that Luke has been watching. Who are the best ones? Who are um, your favorites? 
Yeah, so, you know, if, if anybody listened to the, the Arnold episode, Pumping Irony, and was actually curious about this, I mean, I didn't want to name them on the episode, but I guess I'm going to do that now. Uh, there's a guy called Radu Antonu. Um, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. He doesn't really post anymore, but for three years he ran what I consider the best and most unpretentious. And, you know, a lot of these channels are... You know, I would say dripping in an excessive machismo, and he kind of avoids that. He's very practical. He's also just a, a nice guy. You know, I'd like to have a beer with him. Check out his channel. There's a lot of really good fitness YouTubers in Toronto, some of the biggest ones. Vitruvian Physique is one I like a lot. Um, I use Kino Body's programs. I think maybe his videos are, are not for everybody, but his programs uh, are very good. Once you watch a few of these guys, the algorithm's going to be your friend. It's going to serve you with some options. So if you want to get into this stuff... I don't know, see what you like. I'm struggling because it's all, this is all very earnest and I don't know how to make it ironic, but uh, fitness is fun, folks. Get into it. Who's the worst uh, fitness YouTuber? Name names. Again, uh, you know, I have a good answer, but perhaps not a funny one, which is that the, you know, there's been this whole debate in the YouTube bodybuilder community about fake natties, as they're called, which is people that say that they don't use steroids, but they do. Um, <laughs> and there are a few channels out there. And, you know, I'm not going to name names because I can, can't definitively say who's juicing and who's not. But, you know, if you watch them, I would strongly suspect that they are not being honest. And the problem with that is if they're giving you advice about how to, you know, how to structure your programs, your nutrition, it's not going to be helpful because, you know, their body is just chemically different because they're pumping themselves full of testosterone. So... Avoid hashtag fake natties. <laughs> a few people have asked us to do Knock Down the House, uh, the Netflix doc. Uh, I saw it last night. It's very good. We're going to do that soon for sure. Charlie Wilson's War is another one that's definitely on the queue. Someone asked for more Penn and Teller bullshit. Oh, um, God. Kill me. <laughs> I mean, it's it's going to happen at, at some point. It, it is so rich. But also the thing about Penn and Teller bullshit, which we did as a Patreon episode, is it has... I think two ideas in it, maybe. Uh, the free market is good, and uh, what's its other idea? <laughs> I do kind of... Liberal do-gooders are bad. Right, Those right, are right. Two ideas. I, I kind of like watching... Uh, I, I enjoyed watching Penn & Teller, even though their politics are totally awful, because it was a sort of mid-2000s example of this kind of rationalist, logic nerd thing that's really you know, morphed into what what is farcically called the intellectual dark web and things like that today. This culture of spouting sort of, you know, I think extremely contestable orthodoxies about how capitalism works and the market and things, you know, this kind of libertarian splaining or whatever, um, at, you know, and doing that as if it's rebellious or something to defend Walmart or whatever. I could be persuaded with enough time to maybe uh, do some more Penn and Teller. Penn Gillette's support of Al Goldstein will always uh, make him a good guy in my heart. <laughs> there was one more comment on the last episode, the Trump SNL one, which uh, if you're not on Patreon, you won't have heard, although uh, we, we hope you'll check it out. Uh, is there some German word that describes something that is hilarious but also fills you with hot shame and disgust? That's how I feel listening to Kate McKinnon singing Hallelujah. Uh, the word is Scheiße. <laughs> Uh, no, there isn't, but uh, there should be. And I know exactly the kind of feeling that you're describing. That's that's uh, that's how I feel, too. Britain's had a rough go of it these last few years with Brexit tearing the country apart, the, the failed leadership of Jeremy <laughs> Corbyn. <laughs> 
uh, these national traumas. But every now and then you see something that just reminds you of the majesty of the country, the history. I mean, you've been to Britain. I've been to Britain. You can't walk down the streets of London without just soaking up, soaking up the atmosphere, being like, say what you will about the royals, but they are living history. Just seeing a bobby on the beat. Yeah, going going to the loo, uh, having a wank. Uh, all the British signifiers. Um, and and this week, you know, my my heart swelled. Once again, seeing the beautiful president of the United States, Donald Trump, uh, visiting with the Queen and Prince Charles and the boys. And the, and, the, and the lame duck Prime Minister, Theresa May. I'm sure you enjoyed how the Queen uh, epically owned him by wearing a crown oh, that right. had a jewel that signified something. Right, right, right. So this is part of, uh, you know, I, did, I didn't see this was relayed to me uh, secondhand. So this is part of this, this genre of now because people are so despairing, they have to kind of do alchemy and divination uh, to find acts of sort of rebellion and progressive resistance where there are none. So this is part of that tradition of, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi clapping, you know, defiantly at Donald Trump, even though she, you know, wasn't doing anything of the kind or whatever. It's funny because Jeremy Corbyn actually went to an anti-Trump protest. And the, and the British media was very upset. That was a very naughty thing that he did, the leader of the opposition uh, going to a protest. For some reason, uh, the people I saw on Twitter didn't weren't particularly impressed by that but wearing a, a, cr- a jewel in your crown which could ambiguously be regarded <laughs> maybe if you knew the whole history of the crown as a slight poke in the ribs that's a that's a messy bitch who loves drama <laughs> but speaking of corbin this week we looked back at his rise to power by watching a vice news documentary called jeremy corbin the outsider from 2016 who wants to be prime minister? <laughs> One and all. We love Jeremy Corbyn. My hero, Jeremy Corbyn, the best man in the world. I am not actually that interested in personality. I basically want to see doors open for everybody else. Put on a proper suit, do up your tie, and sing the national anthem. Labour has a problem with anti-Semitism under Corbyn. Utterly disgusting subliminal nastiness. I have to deal with always the unexpected every day. Nazi apologist. Nazi apologist. Rewriting history. Corbyn's going to lose. Labour's going to fail. They are obsessed with trying to damage the leadership of the Labour Party. A lot of criticism, again in the newspaper, do you not need to say and do more? I've never seen such appalling behaviour by the does anybody want to be prime minister? <laughs> it was interesting to watch because it's a whole different world. It's before Brexit. It's before Corbyn's surprise success. Yeah, it's and it's before the 2016 coup to, to oust him. Mm-hmm. The failed coup. The chicken coup, as it's called now. This was definitely in a period when conventional wisdom was, this guy's going to be a complete disaster. He's not even going to make it to the election. Yeah. If he does, uh, the Tories are going to get a fucking blowout. Right, you know? right. Which, in fact, is what inspired Theresa May to call an early general election, which, even though she had a slim majority, she's like, I want a bigger one so that I can do the worst Brexit possible. And uh, guess what happened? Now, I'm no expert on Britain, but I did see a Brexit explainer on uh, the Samantha B show. <laughs> and it's the only thing from the Samantha B show that I've watched 
Um, you actually watched that? Yeah, I did. I, I was curious because I wanted to know what what their take what's, on Corbyn was. What's the was. normie take on Brexit and Corbyn? Uh, I can guess. It's he he didn't win the election, mm. but he got enough seats because he promised free stuff. But that was the Samantha B take. They literally said promised free stuff, which was incredible to hear. And since Corbyn figures he won't win, he just promises everyone everything for free. Then suddenly, half the country goes crazy for some guy dressed like a dad on a Jamaican holiday. The momentum grows and grows and his party does not win. But they wiped out May's majority, so now no one is in charge and she has less power. So the, again, this is the liberal wing of, of, <laughs> of late night TV. Yeah. That's, that's great. So look, I wanted to do, we, we did an episode uh, back at, you know, uh, probably what, a year ago now or yeah, something? Uh, on uh, the documentary Labor, The Summer That Changed Everything, which uh, I think is probably one of my favorite episodes. Uh, Britain is a particular area of interest to me. I think I've said before on the show that the history of the Labor Party is something that I started really immersing myself in about, you know, nine or ten years ago. It is actually where I kind of, I mean, I learned some of my politics through it. It's kind of weirdly, uh, it was weirdly formative to me reading through Tony Benn's diaries, which uh, I have, I think, all but the first one, which you know, it's been out long out of print and I've never been able to get my hands on it. But um, I've been inspired by a lot of figures on the British left, both in and outside the Labour Party, uh, you know, socialist intellectuals. And uh, and I've been particularly inspired by, by what's been happening since uh, 2015 in British politics. But I realize that, you know, not, not everybody has been as kind of immersed in this as me. So I want to give a little bit of a short history of kind of where this all started, because it is, I think, one of the most improbable political stories um, in a Western democracy of recent decades. Jeremy Corbyn's rise was completely unexpected, including by Jeremy Corbyn himself, including by the people who asked him to run and encouraged him to run. It happened in the face of a ceaseless media campaign of smears and abuse, and just more broadly, a kind of pundit narrative on both sides of the Atlantic that certain things could not happen according to the laws of political reality, including, and, and this has been consistent throughout. So he wasn't he wasn't gonna get on the ballot to be in the leadership race. He wasn't gonna win the leadership. You know, he wasn't gonna, et cetera, et cetera. So just to kind of set the stage, back in the spring of 2015, I endured a very depressing night with a few friends watching the election results come in from Britain. This was the election in which Ed Miliband was leader of the Labour Party, is running against David Cameron, another casualty of the past few years. The Labour Party was actually expected to win the election, although it was running on an extremely compromised, I think it's fair to say, uh, program, which included a kind of nominal support for austerity. There's a, a novelty item I really want to get my hands on. If anybody has one, if anyone in Britain's listening and has one uh, and wants to wants to give me an early Christmas present, Labour produced these stupid mugs that had their, like, I'm voting Labour because, and one of them was, I'm voting Labour for controls on immigration. Huh. It was classic triangulation. Ed Miliband had been a figure kind of of the party's soft left, who was seen as a break with Blairism after Gordon Brown's disaster in 2010. You know, and for the first two years, it looked like he might be able to push the reset button, but there was a kind of a total reverse. They embraced a lot of the Tory spending cuts. Uh, the Labour Party was pumping out, you know, some of its MPs were pumping out really ugly rhetoric around welfare recipients and, and other things like that. So the, the mood in the British left after this election disaster was pretty grim. There was a feeling that in the leadership election, perhaps they shouldn't even have a candidate. Diane Abbott had run in 2010 and had finished dead last. 
Some felt, uh, you know, some of the very small group of left-wing MPs in the Campaign for Labour Party Democracy, the Socialist Campaign Group and elsewhere, felt that it might actually just showcase their weakness if they put someone on the ballot and they were decisively defeated. But over over time, it, it became clear that the debate that was going to happen was, was going to be an absolute disaster. And I remember this at the time because I was following very closely. There were a great many declared candidates, you know, at one point, sort of seven or eight people that were going to try to run, almost all of whom were committed Blairites. So, I mean, if you're listening in Canada or even the United States, it may be actually hard to comprehend that a party with that was founded by trade unions would, would have people who were this actually right wing, who were, you know, not kind of embracing austerity out of some you know, professed kind of hesitancy about political realities, but people who actually, you know, believe in it, um, who've built entire careers off this kind of neoliberal triangulation. So it, it became evident the left needed a candidate, but they then they couldn't find anybody to stand. And in the back of one of these meetings, these kind of small depressing meetings, one of the longtime stalwarts of the party's left by the name of Jeremy Corbyn said, what if I, what if I stand? And what followed in, in the weeks after that was a, a social media campaign really unlike any other. The first hurdle they had to clear uh, was just getting Corbyn on the ballot. This is really getting to the nitty-gritty of the Labour Party, but there was a rule which said that you had to get a certain percentage of MPs to nominate you in order to even be allowed to run. And this was put in place basically to preclude left-wing candidates from running, because if members nominate somebody, they're more likely to be from the left. But if you keep it in the parliamentary party, uh, which is more tightly controlled and, and veered, veered at the time more to the right, you know, you're not going to get a figure like Jeremy Corbyn. So what followed was a campaign to basically get, you know, they needed something like 35 nominations. And they had to, uh, you know, they had to come up with all kinds of arguments for why people who weren't going to vote for Corbyn should nominate him to be on the ballot. I want to read from a, a little bit from a book uh, that I've really enjoyed. It's a book called *The Candidate* by Alex Nuns. Um, if you want a an exhaustive account, really engrossing account of Jeremy Corbyn's rise, uh, this is uh, this is the book. I also recommend uh, the the book by Richard Seymour about Corbyn. But just to again kind of set the stage for how depressing things were in the spring and summer of 2015, this is a section um, from from early in the book. There was nearly a month between the general election defeat and Jeremy Corbyn's announcement that he would stand for leader. For those with an interest in the top job, the left's absence removed any restraint on what had become a race to the right. As the debate all but suffocated in an atmosphere of mandatory Blairism, not only the Labour left was appalled, the contest was widely regarded as a flop. It was a festival of vacuous waffle, according to the commentator Steve Richards. Labour had fallen in on itself like a souffle, thought the Guardian's Aditya Chakraborty. It was difficult to find a Blairite who was not considering standing, as well as Liz Kendall, who declared early, speculation swirled around Chuka Amona, front of the show, Dan Jarvis, Tristram Hunt, and Mary Cree. Three other names were in the background, Carolyn Flint, Stella Creasy, and Ben Bradshaw, eventually stood for the deputy leadership. All these figures had essentially the same politics, making the Blairite's failure to agree on a single candidate perplexing. So the other, the other person who became significant in the race was Andy Burnham, who's now the mayor of Greater Manchester. Burnham was initially seen as a figure of the left, but uh, gave a speech very early on in which he called, I think it was the estate tax, he called it the politics of envy or something. Uh, there was a later uh, hustings where he 
refused to say whether he was opposed to a Tory benefit cap, you know, that was basically clawing back thousands of pounds to, you know, some of the most vulnerable people in Britain. Partway through the leadership contest, there was actually a, a vote in Parliament on the clawing back of, I believe, disability benefits. So, I mean, just the cruelest kind of thing that a government could do. Now, the Labour Party didn't have enough votes to, to stop this, but the interim leadership of the Labour Party actually refused to vote against it on the grounds that if they did, the Tories could call them soft on benefit cheats at a later date. So this prompted a rebellion from the left within Parliament, and Corbyn ended up being the only leadership candidate to vote against. I believe Andy Burnham ended up abstaining. So Corbyn finally got into the ballot with 35 nominations, I think about 15 seconds before the deadline. Uh, there's there's accounts in the book, of in Alex Nunn's book, about John McDonnell quite literally down on his knees in tears begging people to nominate Corbyn. But they did eventually squeak by and get him on the ballot. We watched a few minutes of, uh, of some of the debate uh, debates that happened on, on the hustings. It became qu- clear very quickly that Corbyn was filling a really important niche because there was just nobody else making these arguments. The, the race had, had tilted so hard to the right. And then something really extraordinary happened, which is that the campaign, you know, started to take off. And you could you could feel it, even from my distant perch here in Toronto, uh, I could feel it on kind of British politics, uh, social media, Labour MPs uh, just being flooded with pro-Corbyn messages and things like that. Bear in mind, this is a guy who's never served in a Labour cabinet. He's, he was a rebel kind of from the beginning. He was somebody that was very well liked by his colleagues because he's not doesn't have an abrasive personality, but he was certainly somebody that nobody... Uh, ever considered to be a leader and a few weeks after his campaign you know after he got on the ballot it became clear that he was that he was going to win and you know project fear pretty much started the day of his victory i remember compiling a list of headlines from around the world it was you know radical dangerous marxist elected leader of the labor party you know labor members elect far left leader in you know suicidal gesture it was it was all that kind of stuff and, you know, I'm not going to go into the history since in such detail because we got we got to get into this documentary, uh, which definitely captures a snapshot of that. But just to reiterate, I mean, this this was, and you know, right up to the general election in which uh, Labour really shocked everybody by depriving the Tories of their majority. This is probably the single greatest repudiation of official political wisdom that has occurred, you know, anywhere in, in recent years. It's a dramatic turnaround in a country where the nominal left of center party had gone so far to the right and the institutions of the working class that once sustained it had been just completely destroyed first by Thatcher and then by Blair. This was this was simply not supposed to happen. And the fact that it did is an utterly remarkable story from which I think a, a tremendous amount can be can be learned. Since taking over, Jeremy's had to deal with almost constant criticism from the mainstream media. The one thing I've learned over the past um, six months or so is how shallow, facile and ill-informed many of the supposedly well-informed major commentators are in our media. They shape a debate that is baseless and narrow. Now, this documentary comes before a lot of that. It comes during a difficult time in Corbyn's leadership. Uh, It's hosted by a vice journalist named Ben Ferguson, and while it's not a completely flattering documentary, it's about as sympathetic a portrayal as Corbyn had had. Better better than I better than I expected. (laughs) Well, the uh, the journalist was it it was in fact a Labour Party member who voted for Corbyn, right? Which helped. 
It begins with Corbin's victory. We get a little bit of a sense of him, uh, he the side of him that grows vegetables and rides a bike <laughs> and is a teetoler and is a bad dresser. Uh, you can't deny that. It outlines some of the split between the party membership and its MPs. And it's a short documentary, so it only gets into so much detail about anything. But yeah, it's, co- on, it's on YouTube if people want to watch. A couple of the key moments are this speech that he gave in response to the government speech on the refugee crisis, where we see he's barely finished the speech and his own MPs are sort of phoning journalists and talking about what a disgrace it was. <laughs> and the big climactic event is Ken Livingston, former mayor of London, says some remarks uh, that Hitler supported Zionism. Mm. And Ken Livingston was subsequently suspended from the Labour Party. And finally, the documentary climaxes with the local elections where Labour, I guess, lost a certain number of seats but didn't lose as many seats as they were anticipating. They, they, won, they won the popular vote. Yeah. Um, so this is part of a kind of pattern in, in Corbyn's leadership where Labour would often defy expectations, but then the the goalposts would be would be changed immediately. So it'd be like Labour's going to lose like a million seats, and then they lose kind of eighteen and win the popular vote. But you know that's also as much an indictment of the radical left leadership of the party. You know when centrist party leaders get the same results, they don't they don't have the same the same narratives to, do not tend to to form around them, but. We see a lot of footage in the documentary of Corbin canvassing. You know, you can see why he rallied such support. He's very likable. Yeah. A very good grassroots politician. One of the other major threads is the combative relationship the media has with him. And you can really see it sort of weighing on him by the end. Well, it's in, you know, so I don't think I'd ever seen, I, I don't know how I missed this documentary when it came out, but it, but it's it's actually quite close up and personal with Corbin in a way that I think is pretty uncharacteristic. I'm actually sort of surprised that he even agreed to do it because it's just not really his uh, his style. But yeah, I mean, you see him, you know, preparing for prime minister's questions. You see him talking to his kind of strategists in, in a cab on the way to Westminster. You know, you see him reacting. There's a, a particular Guardian pundit who he's, you know, reacting to. He's frustrated by a column that's come out. It's kind of a, a side of him that, that I think you don't usually see. Uh, and I mean, I think for me, one of the things that has only increased my admiration for him is his incredible ability to weather this stuff. So, I mean, th- this documentary captures a moment before the 2016 chicken coup in which the parliamentary party basically just decided to ignore the membership and just kick him out as it happened in 2015 an enormous grassroots campaign you know basically did a second jeremy corbyn leadership campaign the party's right was only able to put up uh, this guy owen smith who was completely ineffective who refused to really distance himself ideologically from corbyn it was it was sort of just a catch-all but it ended up speaking to the kind of incoherence of, of Corbyn's critics within the Labour Party. Um, and he ended up winning with a bigger margin and even more votes than he got the first time. But the torrent of abuse from, you know, parliamentary colleagues, from the media is, you know, I think unlike anything that most people will ever have to weather. There's a British journalist that, you know, I was listening to a, a podcast she was on recently where she was recounting running into him on the subway in the middle of the chicken coup and, and just sort of saying, you know, mate, how you doing? Um, and he basically, he was quite calm and he just said, well, you know, it's pretty much what we expected would happen, which I think is is remarkable. There were there was, ta- I can't remember which, maybe, maybe it wasn't even revealed who said it, 
But I believe it was a member of the Parliamentary Labour Party who said something around the time of the chicken coup that their goal was to break Corbyn as a man. I mean, it was it was a an attempt to kind of psychologically manage the left of the party and to beat activists into submission. It was, you know, kind of the the doctrinarians of, of New Labour um, and their allies in the press just basically putting up a, a hand and saying, halt, you know, this far and no further. And uh, somehow the whole kind of Corbynite insurgency was able to weather this. For I mean, I was all, you know, I was almost broken just watching it play <laughs> out. I didn't see how he was possibly going to survive and somehow he did. Obviously, the problems of the American media are tenfold in Britain. Oh, yeah. Um, how was Corbyn able to get his message out? People like Sanders and Trump have obviously figured out ways, particularly through social media and other new media forms. Uh, did Corbyn do something similar? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I don't like to be too determinist about this. I mean, I, uh, I think people often go overboard with explaining political events through the existence of Facebook or something like that you know, i.e. pictures of a muscly Bernie Sanders created by a Russian bot farm or what cost Hillary Michigan or something like mm-hmm. that. But it's undeniable that social media did play a role in, in this. The press in Britain is unbelievably right-wing. There's a whole uh, kind of history of that going back to when Margaret Thatcher broke the print unions and basically there was a full-blown takeover of the press by Rupert Murdoch and by the right. Um, you know, to the point where in the 90s, Tony Blair was like just openly courting Murdoch and ended up getting, a, you know, a Rupert Murdoch endorsement for New <laughs> Labour. Hard, hard to think of an alliance more disgusting than that. But so the press in Britain is, is almost uniformly right wing. You have, apart from all the right wing papers, you have, you know, the Guardian, the Observer, the Independent, which, you know, I think are sort of more like metropolitan liberal you know, publications more than the social democratic and further left uh, media is much smaller. But the Labour Party does have a long-standing radical tradition, which despite the Thatcherite duopoly of New Labour and the Tories, uh, never really went away. So that was waiting around to be capitalized on. And I do think social media helped distribute these messages often, though not always, of course, to younger people uh, who just don't read, you know, The Sun and The Daily Mail and The Times and things like that. There was also an enormous amount of new membership. Corbett, I don't think I mentioned this before, but... You know, Corbyn's initial leadership victory involved more people voting in a party leadership election than I think had ever happened in Britain before. Hundreds of thousands of people ended up joining the Labour Party in the year after his his victory. In a, in a time when political parties are basically at their modern nadir, the Labour Party has massively expanded and built this huge activist base, which is a real uh, a real achievement. A bit more on on social media. You know, a point Alex Nunns makes in his book is that. Twitter actually gave people unique access to MPs. So when they were trying to get Corbyn on the ballot and lobby these MPs that weren't going to vote for him, I mean, people were just able to, you know, flood their mentions on Twitter. And if, you know, I was actually revisiting, using the citations in the book as a guide, some of those tweet storms this morning, it really really was incredible. I mean, so social media has in some ways made public figure, you know, I don't think it should be romanticized too much, but it has made public figures and people in power more accessible in some ways. And I think this is a a good example of some of the good that can can come out of that. How did they get all that new membership? Was it just like a lot of organizing? Because I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, what the I mean, what the race, you know, revealed, and I think this is where, you know, social media becomes less useful as an explainer, uh, what they what the leadership race, I mean, revealed was that, you know, there was a a tremendous popular desire for an alternative. Um, You know, people don't just want to have elections 
where the choice is austerity or austerity light. They want a real political alternative. When there are so many people suffering because of public spending cuts, when wages are stagnant, when there is so much work being done in the in the right wing press to stoke xenophobia, to stigmatize you know migrants, people coming in from the EU and elsewhere, uh, refugees, people do want an alternative, and there's potentially you know a popular majority in favor of this. It's just that no one had offered that for quite some time. Um, I think you see a similar thing in the United States with Sanders, although. The dynamics are not, uh, you know, if the Democratic Party was a, a membership-driven organization and you could just join it, I think things would be a lot easier. But uh, unfortunately, that's not the case. I'm interested, too, in the current state of the Labour Party. They recently had the EU election where Labour had a disappointing result. What is your take on that? Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that, of course, is not captured by this documentary is the aftermath of Brexit, which has been, you know, really the big or one of the big kind of deciding features of British politics, the decisive events of British politics since it happened. It cost David Cameron his premiership. It also ended up indirectly toppling Theresa May because, of course, she called the general election in order to secure a bigger majority, negotiate a Tory Brexit, and then had the majority taken away by, by Labour. But Brexit has continued to dominate nonetheless. And, you know, I, I read a lot of the British press and I, I find the sort of hard... Rem- I mean, I'm, I, I would have voted to remain, but uh, I find the sort of hard remainer position that's expressed in a lot of the, uh, the British media, particularly kind of the liberal media, I find it, I find it a little, little much. I think that the, the EU, for some people, is embraced as a kind of metropolitan identity, you know. I think there's, there's not enough understanding of why there's frustrations with the EU, uh, the ways in which the EU is a technocratic and managerial institution. Similarly, I mean, obviously, the hard Brexit position, so much of it is just, you know, racism. It's, it's romanticism about the, the good old days of the empire. It's another kind of identity politics, uh, I think, you know, an altogether more reactionary kind of identity politics. Um, and there's been a lot of criticisms of the labor leadership's handling of the Brexit issue. I, I personally think that they have, you know, I mean, not, no, nobody's perfect when it comes to Brexit, but I think they've tried to navigate very, very difficult political waters by coming up with a compromise position. The goal of the Labour Party is to assemble a majority coalition which includes people who voted for Brexit and people who didn't vote for Brexit. And their position has been that you have to respect that a public vote happened and you have to respect the result. Now, what what that means in practice is an extremely complicated question. Um, does respecting the result, you know, when there wasn't a particular kind of Brexit on the table, so uh, do you need a, another referendum to determine what the outcome of Brexit is actually going to look like? But in, a, in any case, I think Labour has kind of tried to change the channel on what is a um, an unnecessarily divisive issue by trying to build uh, a coalition as best it can between some of the people who voted for Brexit and some of the people who didn't. In the European elections, the pro-Brexit parties fared very well, including, and I, I mean, I think this is of grave concern, uh, you know, Nigel Farage launched a kind of UKIP by any other name party called the Brexit Party which is an interesting political phenomenon because unlike UKIP, it embraced this kind of neither left nor right, you know, just a pure, like if you want Brexit, you got you to gotta vote for this. Um, and they performed very well on that basis, but they had no manifesto. The candidates were basically handpicked. There's no kind of Democratic Party structure, which I hope speaks to the weakness of that as a potential political formation. But, but you know, I hope people won't be complacent about it. 
something like that could perhaps be a spoiler in the next general election. I mean, that is quite a, a possibility, and it may end up being a spoiler for the Tories. The Tories did very badly in the European elections. I think they got the worst result of any Tory party in any election, national election in hundreds of years. Um, like they got something like 12%. I think they were behind the Green Party. Wow. Um, so, so in some ways, I mean, the questions about the current state of the Labour Party are actually less interesting than the current state of the Tory party. There's about to be a leadership election in which Boris Johnson is widely expected to win. He is absolutely loathed, as I understand, by, by some of his colleagues. But he's very popular as a sort of Trumpian figure with a lot of the Tory membership. And just imagine the kinds of people who tend to be members of the Tory party. But the Tory party itself as a you know machine, I mean, it's very it's very popular with, you know, the financial sector and other things. But, you know, they don't have a big membership. There was a statistic. I can't it's for, I think a few years old about how uh, it was maybe in 2017. They had more uh donors who were dead than living um, because people had left the money in their will or something like that. It's a party funded by, you know, a lot of the a lot of the donations come from a very small number of extremely wealthy families. I mean, it's essentially a kind of Soviet of the landed gentry in the city of London. Can you describe to me the results from your point of view? I was being told with great um, uh, authority by members of parliament here a week ago that um, we were going to lose at least 300 seats and that it was all down to my fault. Um, in fact, we had a loss of 29 seats and uh, we hung on. So I'm very happy and um, I've been calling various people this evening to congratulate them on their results. So, uh, we've learned today in conclusion, Jeremy Corbyn, failed leader. <laughs> we live in a society. Bad dresser. <laughs> Actually, can we talk about the? Uh, can we talk about Corbyn's clothes for a sec? Oh yeah, sure, sure. So uh, Will 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 kept taking issue with uh, Corbyn's dress uh, throughout the throughout the program, and I I'm happy to say I'm not alone. The British media and the official opposition and the governing party as well all are in agreement on this issue. So Corbyn's clothes have been a uh, an issue in in British politics since uh, since he first entered them. There's a clip from the BBC in the early 80s uh, where they're talking about the dress at Westminster and they introduce Corbyn by calling him Robin Corbyn and then interviewing him. And of course, he looks uh, he looks very scruffy, although I uh, I like the style personally. It's a style I would I would I would do. I thought he looked a little bit like Edgar Wright. (laughs) (laughs) But there's a whole history in British politics. You want to know how how despicable the right wing press in Britain truly is. There's a whole history of just talking about the way people dress and how they're dressing incorrectly and how they're not posh enough. Famously, Michael Foote, who was a left-leaning labor leader in the early 80s, was ridiculed for going to a... This this was one of the big scandals during his leadership, was that he went to a Remembrance Sunday in what the British media deemed a donkey jacket. Huh. And if you see it, I mean, if, you, if you're not immersed in whatever produces a phrase like donkey jacket and you see it, it just he's just wearing a coat. Like, it's... I mean, he's a... He was kind of a frumpy-looking man but i mean donkey jack is that cockney rhyming slang or is that like is that something similar to that thing about david cameron and the pig i'm not sure like that i'm not sure i'm advanced enough on the on the class ladder to to decrypt whatever whatever's you know all of the connotations that are in, in a phrase like donkey jacket but it's supposed to be mean and it and it was anyway i like the way corbin dresses 
Yeah, I think he his his uh, beige jackets look a little bit like Obama's tan suit. Later on the co- after this documentary came out, it was on the cover of GQ. So there, have huh? you been on the cover of GQ? Uh, D- didn't think so. N- not yet. <laughs> but with Michael and us nation's help, now watch this drive. The man insisting on higher sartorial standards from his fellow members is Tory MP Terry Dix. He says that Labour scruffs like Robin Corbyn should be barred from addressing the House unless they pull their socks up. It's not a fashion parade, it's not a gentleman's club, it's not a banker's institute. It's a place where the people are represented. Is uh, that the jumper that your mum made? Yes, it is. She didn't make the shirt as well, I suppose. No, no, she didn't make the shirt. That came from the co-op. But the, the jumper she knitted, and it's very comfortable, and it's perfect for this kind of weather, because I'm hopping in and out of buildings all day long, going to meetings and different places, and it's just, just perfect for the winter weather. At late at night here, it's quite disgusting. Uh, after the um, dinners are over and the division bell rings for 10 o'clock, there's fleets of limousines draw up, and out get large Tory MPs with even larger stomachs, wearing dinner jackets, and they stride in to vote. Well, You're not jealous? Not at all, because I turn down dinner invitations all the time. I don't think that's the job of an MP. The job of an MP is to represent their people. I just got an invitation through the mail. Your present requested this evening is formal. A top hat, a white tie, a tail. Nothing now could take the wind out of my sail. Because I'm invited to step out this evening with top hat, white tie, and tails. Oh, I'm putting on my top hat, tying up a white tie. Brushing off my tail I'm Dooting up my shirt front Putting in the shirt stud Polishing my nails I'm stepping out my dear to breathe